Hello, welcome to our Wednesday program. This Wednesday, anyway, who knows? Next Wednesday we might all be dead. But it's this Wednesday's program. Because it's Wednesday now, and the program is now. Therefore, this is Wednesday's program. Live. Live if you're here now. And if you're not here now, well, you're also here now. It's just a different now. I'm not here now. I am, but a different me. The me that you're hearing is already dead. A new me has been born. Born and die. But we're live, and we're just talking about the value of a live discourse. And certainly there's a, there's a sense, a feeling, and interest and a, a level of attention that is gained from a live interaction. Something is not live, it's less engaging. We feel less engaged by something that is pre-recorded. That's all psychological. The reality is you can you can gain the same benefit from a pre-recorded teaching if you can keep the level of attention, interest, and sincerity. Which is why I recommend when you're listening to a Dhamma talk, whether it's live or or whether it's pre-recorded, that you take it seriously have some reverence for it, you know, before the advent of recording technology, the most common way to get a Dhamma talk would be to actually go to a monastery and engage in very formal interaction in the sense of sitting often for an hour with your hands clasped to your chest reverential salute sitting on the floor in a student position enduring pain and cold and heat and fatigue boredom enduring desires and aversions and all sorts of things and and being very reverential and respectful and so now people can listen to a talk in their underwear at home while they're eating or smoking or drinking or who knows what playing games and if anyone plays video games while they listen to my talks that would be bad that would be irreverent 
That would be disrespectful. Not to me, that's not so important. That's not important. To the Dhamma, to the Buddha's teaching. You know, you, you, you can do all those things besides drinking alcohol. That's something you should never do. But all those other things, as a, if you're, unless you're a monk or, or a meditator is at a center, you can engage in all sorts of things. No harm, no foul, but not while you're listening to the Dhamma. You should never, never be distracted when listening to the Dhamma. That's most important. Whether it's live or pre-recorded, that's not a huge... That's just psychological. And that's not very powerful psychological. Most powerful psychological is your state of reverence. Uh, I mean, most important uh, is your state of reverence. And that can come from listening to anything. It can come when reading Dhamma books. You treat Dhamma books like Buddha statues. You know? Don't put your books on the floor. Don't put your shoes on top of your books. Don't treat them poorly. Don't bend the pages. So today is a Q&A session, which has to be done live anyway, so there's no... We could do pre-recorded questions, but it's not the same. I don't find that as useful. Yes, People can come back and get answers to their question. That's quite useful, but much more useful is answering questions people have now. Answer, answering them right when they have them directly. Don't make them go looking for answers. Answer them. And I know the answers are shorter than they might be if I did a video on one question, but the other... Ben the benefit is that we can answer lots of questions. So this is about answering questions, and Shraddha is here again, kindly to ask them. And we'll just take this as a session to listen to the Dhamma and to speak about the Dhamma. And to cultivate the Dhamma. So just close your eyes, focus on the experiences in the present moment, the physical sensations, the feelings of pain or pleasure, calm, the thoughts, the hindrances, the senses. Remind yourself of what things are. Use the mantra to remind yourself, it is this, it is this. Pain, pain, thinking, thinking, feeling, feeling. When you have questions, just open your eyes, type them in. Close your eyes again. We'll try to get to them all. If they're questions about meditation, if they're not, well, we may not try so hard. If there are no questions, we'll just sit here and we got about an hour or so. Take this as an opportunity to meditate together. Many people like that.
someone this, someone who think the volume is a bit low. Oh well. Yeah. That's just the way it is. I just have to turn something up. For me it's okay. I can just listen to me too. Do we have some questions? Here. I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> the first question, it's not really about meditation, but someone stayed up till 2 a.m. to ask. So hmm. it's good. I, I just put it there because it's 2 a.m. in my country where I live, and I wanted to stay up to ask this question. I stay life and death. Well, that's not fair. You can't use a sympathy card to ask questions that aren't about meditation. I'm going to pass on that one, sorry. You should go to sleep, and when you wake up in the morning, do some meditation. Um, this question is, I think it's one of those that we didn't get to last time they had asked this question last time. But going back to desires and trying to let them go. Should I not think about what will happen if I ever reach that state? What motivates you to live and do things once you no longer have desires? No, you shouldn't think about what will happen. That's not how it works. You should you shouldn't even be trying to let them go. That's not that's not what you're taught. Have you read the booklet? I hope that the booklet doesn't tell you to try to let them go. If it does, well, we, we may have to redo it. And it may not be perfect, no matter how much we redo it. But let's be clear, we're trying to understand. Just like we're not trying to run away from suffering or escape suffering, we're trying to understand suffering. Same with the cause of suffering. It's really one and the same. You understand suffering, you also understand the cause. So put aside that idea of letting go of desires. Try to understand what's suffering, what is the cause of suffering. Unfortunately, desires are the cause of suffering, so you'll learn that. That's okay. Don't worry. But once you learn that something's the cause of suffering, why the heck would you? Well, you just wouldn't. You couldn't hold on to it. Just It, it isn't possible then to cling or strive for it. Meditate with open eyes to avoid daydreaming. Hmm. Well, you've you've used a trigger word, avoid. You're trying to avoid things, you've got a problem. That's where your problem is. Problem isn't in daydreaming, the problem is in trying to avoid. Okay, daydreaming is a problem. But the re the reaction shouldn't be of oh, I wish I could avoid this. The reaction should be to be mindful of the experiences involved in daydreaming. See, there's not just the daydreaming, there's a trigger for it. There are triggers for it, and it's those triggers that you have to get skilled in catching. 
So no, you shouldn't try to avoid things. If you're daydreaming, there's a reason. There are causes for it, and there are results, and there's a whole process. And it's that process, the, the individual states involved in that process, that you should be mindful of. So I think this falls in the category of questions I can't really answer. There is no... Most questions that are worldly like this, because they are, it is worldly, it sounds like a meditation question, but it really isn't. It has nothing to do with your meditation, this question. This question is about how to interact with other people, right? And there's so many factors involved, so many factors, that there isn't an answer. But meditation will help you uh, see wholesome state, understand wholesome states, unwholesome states, you know, and it will help you see the 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 nature of your engagement with the world. So you'll see when you're doing things that cause suffering, and when when you're doing things that are causing happiness, and so on. I can't give you an answer. There isn't one. But I can tell you that if you're mindful, you'll be able to see what you're doing wrong. So suppose something happens, and, and often, most often, I think, or quite often, the, the worst thing is when you feel bad about something. Someone maybe reacts violently or negatively to something you did, and, and you feel guilty about it, even though you didn't actually do anything wrong. Because doing things is not actually a, wrong. It's not wrong to do this or do that. So suppose you awkwardly try to do something like say um yeah meditating and you know and it comes off wrong and the person gets angry but actually your mind states were were pure maybe maybe you were angry that they disturbed you but maybe not but suppose even if your mind states were pure someone might get upset and then you feel guilty and think what am i doing wrong quite often it's just because you're not clearly mindful of the reality of, of the situation and the reality is you're getting upset over things you shouldn't get upset well you should never get upset so if you're upset about the way a situation turns out and this could apply to anything anything you do something you do something someone else does if you get upset that upset is is just as much a problem as any any negative mind states you might have had that caused the situation you get angry at someone they respond with anger back. You feel guilty. Feeling guilty is just another bad mind state. Feeling like, like, well, I mean, guilt is hard to define because it means you feel angry at yourself. You, f you feel angry at the situation. You dislike what happened, that sort of thing. You feel sad, that sort of thing. All of that is just more unwholesomeness. So I guess in short, meditation and therefore the answers that I'm going to give don't deal with such concepts as family and being disturbed. So let me let me talk about that in a second, being disturbed. But all of these things are conceptual. And the reality is, what are the mind states before it happened? What are the mind states when it happened? What are the mind states as it happened? What are the experiences? What's the reality? As far as being disturbed, I can offer a little bit of advice not to be 
not to cling to the idea of being disturbed because ultimately you can't be disturbed. Yes, we tell you you should do so many minutes. You can try to explain to people that you have a schedule, whatever. But uh, try to be careful not to get into the idea of being disturbed because, well, learn, learn not to be disturbed by being disturbed. Disturbed physically is not the same as disturbed mentally. And I guess I would just point out you have to be careful to see the difference. How can I pro practice prostration? What there's a video, so I just put the name of the video, but it's also in the book, right? Is observing something I can know? For example, observing the sensations in my chest or observing my thoughts. Well, that would be kind of weird. If you have sensations in your chest, you should say sensing or feeling. If you have, have thoughts, you should say thinking. You know, would you really ever be observing the observation? The only way you'd say observing is if you were observing the observation. You can observe, uh, or you can note knowing, because sometimes you become aware of something, like some situation or something. You say, "Oh boy, I'm really, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm, my, my, maybe things are very acute. Like sometimes the senses are very acute, very um, striking, or your seeing is very vivid, hearing is very sharp." So then you know that, you're aware of that. You can say knowing, knowing. That's a common one. Bhante, when I get angry, hurtful thoughts, I try to be mindful that it is, it is just pasta. And any feelings of betrayal are simply due to the ego. Is this skillful? Any advice? Okay, we're going to have to nip this in the bud. You be mindful of things that, that arise. You don't be mindful of something as something else. So if there's an angry, hurtful thought, mindfulness means you be mindful of that anger, that hurt, that thought. So if there's anger in the mind, being mindful means saying angry, angry. Or it's what arises out of saying angry, angry, because then you're mindful of the anger. If there's uh, hurtful, you know, vindictive thoughts, you, know, you can note it's also anger, really, anger-based. And then if there's, if it's just a thought, like if you think to yourself, "I want, you know, I should kill this person or hurt this person," but sometimes that thought just arises as a stray thought because the mind is crazy like that. And, and there's no anger involved, and it's just thinking. You don't have to worry. You don't have to be. You should never be worried. But you don't have. It's not unwholesome. You just say thinking, thinking. But when you say try to be mindful that it is just something else, like like you're saying, reminding yourself that something is something else. That's not mindfulness. That's um, intellectual intellectual retrospection or whatever. It can be useful. Well, it's good to 
it's it's about views, right? When you remind yourself that something is just pasa, that's cultivating right view on a on a conceptual level. It's not actually very deep, but it can be useful in, in the beginning to remind yourself of that sort of thing. It's just not mindfulness. It's not not the mindfulness we talk about when we practice the satipatthana. And then when you say they're simply due to the ego, yeah, it's very intellectual, conceptual. It hurts. Potentially skillful, but I would advise you not to rely on that sort of thing. It's just a trick in the end. You're just trying to find a trick to stop yourself from having to deal with the, to face the thoughts, to face the experiences directly. It's very common in the beginning. The Buddha stated to give up thinking like one's head is on fire. Are we, in an ultimate sense, expected to completely abandon thinking? Okay, I'm going to question that. You find me a sutta where the Buddha said exactly like that. He may have. Uh, and ultimately it does make sense, but that's not, I think, what the Buddha said about one's head on fire. If one's head is on fire, if one has wrong view, one should give up wrong view as though one's head is on fire. I believe that's what he said. Wrong view is different from giving up thinking. So let's answer that. But let but put, putting aside your, what I think is a misquoting of the Buddha, you know, maybe wrong. But you you show me. Let's put that aside. It doesn't really matter. Um, thinking this this can be answered on two levels. First of all, from a practical level, you will never give up anything. You you observe and try to be aware. We are not trying to stop ourselves from thinking. So I can say that. I can say that categorically, that is not the case. We are not trying to stop thinking. And that's important from a practical perspective. We're trying to understand thinking. And we're trying to see thinking as thinking. What is cognized should be understood as just what is cognized. And that, that means thought. It means any kind of mental activity. But on the other level... The level of a goal, right? Because you know, the ultimate goal is freedom from suffering, freedom from samsara. And in Nibbana there is no thinking, of course. But that's a whole other level. That's when the mind has let go of thinking. It's not that you give it up, you just let go. There's no more clinging, no more desire, no more suffering. And so if you look at it that way, you can say, well, yeah, but it's not just thinking, it's, it's samsara. It's when the mind lets go of samsara. How do we prevent ourselves from getting lost in thought for long periods of time? Or is this simply or is this the is this simply the nature of our mind? Try and use proper grammar. I'm I'm not picking on this question in particular, but you're all making a shraddha work here when she has to and it shows potential uh, lack of mindfulness. And, and lack of reverence. So 
maybe you didn't think about that. This, I mean, this isn't critical, but just as a reminder, let's all try when we write our questions out to be thoughtful, to be conscientious. This isn't just, you see, think of this, think, think of how we engage with, with texts when we text each other. We're very lazy. Tick, 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 you know, you just put the text out there. That's not very respectful, which is fine because if you're just close friends, nobody expects you to be. But this is different. This you need a sense of reverence. You're asking a question about the Dhamma here. That should that should have some some weight to it. When you ask a question of the Dhamma, normally, normally, wow, you want to ask a question of the Dhamma, you have to preface it with I'm not this please don't do this, but you you would have to preface it and you would have to hold your hands up to your chest. And the whole time you were listening to the answer, you would have to have your hands up to your chest. And when it was done, you know, you might even have to, depending on the situation, you might have to bow down three times to the teacher just to show your your reverence that this was serious, that you're not just, you know, lazy. You're not, you're not just, you know, uh, this isn't just a whim or something. Because really, no one owes you an answer. I don't know your answers. I leave myself out of this. The teacher doesn't know your answers. And so you're asking for a favor, and you're asking for a very big favor, a very deep and profound favor. You're asking for someone to teach the Dhamma. Normally, before a talk, you would have to recite, like in Thailand, Brahma, Chaloka, Dipati, Sahampati. You have to remind the teacher of how Sahampati Brahma came and asked the Buddha, and how the Buddha acquiesced because he saw that some people would understand it. And based on that, they say to Dhammang Anukampi Mangpachang, please teach the Dhamma for the out of compassion for this group of people. So let's uh, at the very least try and be careful of our grammar because it's it shows respect. And I don't I'm not angry, I'm not upset about this. It's not something to get upset about, but just a reminder. Let's also it's it's helpful for Shraddha as well because she has to read them all. So you don't prevent yourself from getting lost in thought. Part of that, that's part of seeing non-self that you're not in control. What do you do about it? Because it's not an ideal situation for meditation, of course. Well, part of it is just chipping away at your habits because that's just a bad habit that we have of getting lost in thought. And that will change. It will change once you start to see how stressful it is and how taxing it is on the mind. And we didn't realize before we started meditating that actually all the ordinary thought we engage in, it's it's suboptimal. We're not very much at peace when we do that. But a good a good way of approaching it, understanding it, is that when you realize you're thinking, you know, thinking, of course, that's simple. But what you will try to to verify is that you're able to catch the thought sooner. And that's a sign of progress, that you're able to catch it first. You can only catch it at the very end, after you've been thinking for a long time and the thought's finished. After some time, you can catch it halfway through. You find you halfway through the thought, you realize, oh yeah, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing with my mind. You say, thinking, thinking. Well, you just it's not judgment, it's just you realize that you're thinking and you remember to say to yourself, thinking, thinking. Sometimes, as you get better at it, 
you can catch yourself just when the thought begins. And that's when you know you're really getting the hang of it. But it's a skill. It comes over time. Have I scared people out of asking questions? <laughs> I didn't mean to scare anyone. Please don't. Please give us a chance to do good as well. Both Shraddha and I are making merit, are doing goodness here. We're gaining, we're gaining great wholesomeness in our minds by helping you. So don't deny us that, please. And you're gaining wholesomeness by asking, so don't deny yourself that. Sometimes I meditate when I go to sleep. I keep meditating for hours till 3 or 4 a.m. I finally sleep and I wake up at 6 feeling well. Is it dangerous? No, that's great. It depends on, you know, the only danger would be if you are engaging in taxing activities during the day. Because if you are... Over time, you'll find it's not sustainable. There's too much stress on the on the mind. But, you know, it, it's much more about your level of mindfulness during the day. If you can stay mindful throughout the day, you'll find you need very little sleep, if any. If you get really into the mindfulness practice, you don't even need sleep at all. But that's not easy. I feel sensations in the same points every time I meditate. Could I note these sensations and go back to my breath and focus on these thoughts? Go back to your breath. Note them until they go away. If after a while the sensations don't go away, just ignore them. And then go back not to the breath but to the stomach. Which is, I guess, what you mean, so it's just nitpicking. If if your first language is not English and you're worried about grammar, please don't be. It's fine. Probably shouldn't have said it, said it exactly like that, because a lot of people, English isn't their first language, so there's absolutely no reason for us to, absolutely no expectation that, that your grammar should be perfect if your language is in English. So that's really something we can't criticize. Try your best, but don't be afraid. This is not really about, it's not just about how to keep time, it's not really about meditation, but can I add mindful prostration to my walking meditation time? Thank you so much for your teachings, dear Vanta. So, I'm not quite sure what you mean, but I, I think you mean... Before I do walking, can I add mindful prostration? Um, if that's what you mean, then of course, yes. But if you mean, instead of doing some of the walking, can I do wa mindful prostration and count it as walking meditation? I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. Don't take up your walking meditation time with prostration instead. Do the prostration first, then start the timer for your walking and... Than the sitting. It sounds like if that's the case, you might not 
like walking meditation, which is a good reason to do walking meditation. Because disliking is something you should work through. As a married householder, is it possible to achieve freedom from suffering through meditation? It's possible for anyone to achieve freedom from suffering through meditation, though perhaps not in this life. Most people, it's not possible in this life. Uh, it has nothing to do with being married or being a householder, though. Certainly, if someone isn't married and isn't a householder, it's much more likely that they'll be able to practice in such a way as to find freedom from suffering, but through meditation. But it doesn't mean that one or the other is uh, always going to be better. such a thing as a high quality meditation session if so how does that look like well meditation is more about the moments as I've said other, other times so the more quality moments you have the more quality the session would be but it's hard to judge I wouldn't judge my sessions like that. Try to find moments of clarity and they're going to be different. And Your, your sessions should be different from, from session to session, from day to day, from week to week. you ask about liking and disliking during the meditation course and the more I think of it can't every experience be thought of as liking and disliking to an unenlightened person no you mean I hope you mean liking or disliking because you obviously can't have them both at the same in the same experience but neither is every experience liking or disliking so, I mean, if you really want to know the answer to that, you have to you have to study the Abhidhamma to understand the different kinds of experiences that can arise. Some of them are liking, some of them are disliking, some of them are neither. But yeah, if you have a pleasant feeling, it's generally going to be liking associated with it. If you're, there's the, if you're not mindful, you see, without mindfulness, which is in all wholesome consciousnesses. Then they'll be liking, they'll be disliking, or if there's if it's a neutral feeling, there will be delusion. Lobha moha dosa, lobha dosa moha. It'll be one or another. That's during the unwholesome state. Oh, 
And there'll be a lot of it. If someone's not enlightened, then yeah, there'll be a lot of liking and a lot of disliking. And you might have to be vigilant about noting it. We usually go with what's clearest. If, it's, if, if liking and disliking is most prevalent, then note that. What is the goal of meditating? To see clearly. Someone else asking, is meditation a way to know yourself and the world better? Yes. To this question, I'm not sure about. He's asking about you. Do you think mm -hmm. meditation can cure things like bad eyesight? I noticed you wore glasses in the past. Oh, you know what can cure bad eyesight? Laser eye surgery. That can cure bad eyesight. There are some uh, some illnesses that might be curable through meditation, but it'd be very rare and very specific to an individual. I think I'm in in the videos on how to meditate I talked about how because I was under the impression that it could cure things like cancer but I think in certain cases maybe I mean there's lots of talk among meditators about it curing this or curing that and I think in in specific instances it could and quite often it won't the people who meditate still die they still have bad eyesight for sure Jen Tong had cataracts. He had laser eye surgery, I think, a few times. All right, I see people answering questions in the chat. Please don't... That's not what this is about. If you're not asking a question, the chat isn't for chat. It's misnamed. Chat is only for asking questions. If you're not asking a question, you should have your eyes closed. You should be focused on the practice. We'll monitor the chat. You don't have to monitor it. How do we stay strong aversions to certain emotions and circumstances? Do I need to be patient and wait until I'm stronger and have more practice? So with strong, yeah, with strong emotions, you can avoid them. You retreat, knowing you're not, I'm not ready to deal with this. Just try not to get in the habit of doing that. Because retreat, of course, is failure. It's just that failure isn't the end. It's okay, I failed, but maybe next time I'll be better at it. Maybe next time I will succeed. You should try to note. If you suppose you have a strong aversion, you should try to note disliking, disliking, or anger, or so on. But if you really can't deal with it, then, then and if you 
end up retreating, try, try, try again. One of the things you have to realize is that you are strong enough because there are no consequences of facing, there are no consequences of observing. Anger won't kill you. Anger will just you know, boil. Well, it can be unhealthy and physically and mentally, for sure. But apart from that, just facing the anger, eventually you have to. You have to face it head on. And with mindfulness as a tool, we're much more powerful than we think, much stronger than we think. It's a skill. You have to work up to it. to do when you feel bored of meditating? Ah, oh, well, you see, what would you do, Shraddha, when you feel bored of meditating? What, what should they do? The boredom. Hmm. That means, that means, you see, let, let's analyze this question so you can have an idea of how how you have to shift your thinking and how how different it is to look at reality as a meditator than it is uh, from an ordinary perspective. So we think when, when, when something happens, we have to do something about it, right? In meditation, when something happens, we have to understand it. So when, you say, what to do when? What to do when X happens? Understand X. So you're saying, what to do when you feel bored of meditating? Try to understand feeling bored of meditating. In fact, you can throw off the meditation part. It doesn't matter what you're bored of. It ma what matters is, because that's not real. You're, there's boredom, and you interpret that as being bored of meditation. In fact, boredom is not even boredom. Boredom is aversion. It's often triggered by desire for something else. But there's a lot going on there. So you would not bored, bored, or disliking, disliking, or if you want to do something else, say wanting, wanting. What does to increase? your meditation time or leave it at a set time? You should try to both increase the time to, to, a, to a limit, to an extent. You know, you wouldn't just try to indefinitely increase the time. Um, but also increase the number of sessions you do throughout the day. So don't do one without the other. Don't just do lots of short sessions or don't do one really long session. Try and balance those two factors out. And limit it generally to one hour walking, one hour sitting per session as a maximum. If you want to do more, do walking, sitting, walking, sitting, that's fine. Four, four hours. But you know, much better would be to spread it out throughout the day. So it's consistent, it's continuous.
how often should a lay person to a super meditation to get rid of love? Yeah, you can do it whenever and do it throughout the day. Do it daily. But it's not most effective. It's it's helpful to reduce it, but much more deeply effective is mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body especially. And watching the stomach rise and fall, watching the foot move puts you in touch with the truth of the body. And there's no reason, there's no room for seeing it as beautiful or desirable. These are not meditation exactly, meditation questions, but that's the precept. Is intending to break one of the precepts the same as actually breaking it? Would intending to kill a being but failing at it be as bad as actually killing the being? Why not? It's impossible to say, because what do you mean by by bad what do you mean by same karma is the inclination of the mind the, not even inclination the, the state of the mind if the state of the mind is one of greed one of anger, one of delusion then that's unwholesome but it's very hard to quantify or determine the badness of it, you know, the level of badness, how bad is it? This isn't a very useful question, I don't think. I mean, it's it's a, quite a common one, sort of one. And people are concerned, like, I wanted to kill something and I didn't. Is that still bad? Yeah, it's still bad. But it what was bad is not the action or the relation to the action, it's the states of mind. You know, that's where the problem is, so focus on those. understand is meditation is at the stage of Sammasati in Eightfold Noble Path. Is meditation a shortcut to be at the stage of Sammasati or do we have to go through all the stages of Eightfold Noble Path? It doesn't work like that. The Eightfold Noble Path, in fact, the Eightfold Noble Path is a single moment and it's describing the moment when the mind is perfect, when all eight factors are perfect. When the mind is perfect, and there's, there are eight qualities in that sense, eight qualities, the eight path factors. But it's just a moment. Why is it a moment? Because technically, path means the thing that leads to the goal, and there's only one moment that leads to the goal. It's the moment before the goal. Before that, there's a lot of imperfection. So it's called the pubangamag, the preliminary or the you know, the preliminary path. And at that point, there's all eight factors are not perfect. So it's not about jumping from one to the other. We use mind we use sati because that's the most practical entrance to the cultivation of the path. Again, I wouldn't try to intellectualize it too much. 
what they these questions are I'm not sure I'll ask them and then you could decide mm -hmm. can God be our object of meditation all right so there's two reasons you might be asking this one you might sincerely want to know the answer and two you might be a you might be here to try to inject a different religious ideal into this session if it's the latter then really you shouldn't be here and we'd, we'd appreciate if you just didn't come but if it's sincere well it's a sign you haven't really you don't really understand what we're doing here have any idea about who i am or what i do which is fine but i would recommend that you read the booklet on how to meditate and i'm not going to answer beyond that i'd appreciate if people tried to you know we we don't we aren't open to other religious views coming in and injecting them what we do has nothing to do with god so if um, I mean, and again, if it's sincere, if you are a person who believes in God and you're wondering, well, you should read our booklet because it's very, very different from what we do. Does our meditative progress depend on our past karma? That is, all the experiences when we note from body, mind, feelings, and dhammas are all based on past karma. Yeah, technically, well, it's complicated. This is a question that doesn't really matter. Why does it matter? What benefit do you get from getting an answer to that question? Not really much. So I would just let it go. It's the the technical answer is complicated, and you really want to study the study the Abhidhamma to understand the 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 nature of what you're asking. But I wouldn't really encourage that. It's just a lot to take in, and it's not that helpful in meditation. I mean, it's the Abhidhamma. The Abhidhamma is incredible, and what I, I've said this before, I recommend people to read the Abhidhamma. Don't don't even worry too much about understanding it. Just read it or listen to it. Even you get a sense of how deep it is. That's a that's a really good thing. non-meditation question. You once mentioned Sankara Loka in a video, the perception of reality. Is our perceptions of reality different for each person? I think you didn't understand what I meant by Sankara Loka. That's not what Sankara Loka means. Sankara Loka is the world of world. Loka means world with a K actually. Uh, sankara is formations, so that's that's experiences really. Sankara are experiences. That's the meaning there. Is our perception of reality different for each person? Well, yeah, these are hard because they're English words, but we we do react to reality differently. We do. 
perceive, I guess, and conceive in regards to reality differently, because, of course, conceptions and, I guess, perceptions, whatever the word actually means, um, are, are totally mental, right? They're mental formations. But those mental formations are just as formations as just as much formations as physical formations are physical are the same. They're all ultimately formations that you should be mindful of. it should be mankind's purpose to tell ourselves from suffering rather than the material nature of most today so the word repeal I don't understand what word you meant to use I don't think that's the word you meant to use mankind's purpose to relieve to free I could go for that. Do you believe it should be our purpose, not just men, but women as well, and not just humans, but all beings? The best purpose is to free ourselves from suffering. But people engage in material pleasure, material desire, thinking that it will relieve, relieve their suffering as well. So really what we should be doing is engaging in observation uh, to cultivate understanding seeing clearly so that we know what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness so that we understand what is suffering and what is happiness that's the real purpose and the best purpose When I sit to meditate and close my eyes, I get swayed by thoughts and feel drowsy. I can't distinctly tell what really happens, but I do realize that I start to conceptualize everything. Please guide. I don't know if you've read the booklet on how to meditate. If you haven't, I would recommend our booklet. The, the, there's a link to it in the description. should be in the description to this video. If not, it's on our website, sirimangalo.org. But all of those things are, well, the swaying, the drowsiness, the realization, any conceptualization, all of those can be objects of meditation. So you can note them as they arise, find a name for them, remind yourself, it is this, it is this, just this, just this. many different copies of the Abhidhamma online from many different authors. Is there one you suggest we read? Also, is there a difference between the Abhidhamma and Abhidharma? So I, I didn't mean to say, suggest you should read one, should read the Abhidhamma, but if, but maybe I should, maybe yes, you should read 
but I meant read the actual Abhidhamma, not not someone's author, so not something someone wrote about the Abhidhamma. So you talk about different copies by different authors, that's not possible. There's only one author of the Abhidhamma, and that's the Buddha. The Abhidharma is often not written by the Buddha, it's something different. But the Abhidhamma, it's in Pali, so you could read the Pali. There's also, I think, second best to that would be to read the English or whatever your language is. Translation, the Pali Text Society has copies of very old translations, which are probably still worth reading. I don't know how far you'd get if you tried to read the Abhidhamma. It was, it was kind of uh, facetious, I don't know, uh, tongue-in-cheek, not quite. Kind of off the cuff, I mean... I don't really expect anyone to read the whole Abhidhamma, but no, it wasn't. It wasn't being tongue in cheek. It was just the idea would be to read some of the Abhidhamma, to get a sense of it, read the the beginnings of the Abhidhamma. It's not the kind of thing you can really. Well, it is the kind of thing you could really read, but you need some time, and you'd really have to repeat it kind of thing you would recite to yourself every day not because it has some intellectual value because it, but because it reminds you of reality Abhidhamma is much less intellectual in fact I would say the interesting thing here's the interesting thing I think I think I'm right in saying that the Abhidhamma is far less intellectual than the Sutta and yet, what is written about the Abhidhamma is far more intellectual than what is written about the suttas. How's that? Strange, huh? If you read the Abhidhamma, it's very unintellectual. It's just kusala dhamma, akusala dhamma, abhyagata dhamma. Wholesome dhammas, unwholesome dhammas, uh, indeterminate dhammas. The intellectual stuff comes when you start to say, well, okay, but, but, <laughs> right? Which has nothing, there's nothing in the Abhidhamma. Well, there's a little bit, but mostly there's nothing about but, 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 what, what about, or explain this. It's very unexplained for the most part. I mean, I haven't read the whole Abhidhamma, but I've studied it, and the studies can be very intellectual, some of them. Whereas the Abhidhamma itself, you read it and it's it's a whole different feeling. It's just a recitation of reality. That's not maybe entirely fair. I mean, there is some explanation in it, but the way it's explained is still very matter-of-fact. Any other meditation questions before we go? Um, yeah, there's, there's one. The other one I'm not sure. Alright, we'll take the one you're sure of. One thing, my practice is not consistent. So is my motivation. Could you please advise how I can foster motivation, energy, and commitment to learn and practice Dhamma in a consistent manner? Practice. It's all just practice. Don't look for a shortcut. 
I can't give you advice that's going to make it easier. That's, if it were easier, you wouldn't gain as much from it, so it wouldn't actually help you. There's no way, what's the word, there's no way through but through. There's a saying like that. There's no other way but through, something like that. You can't go around, <laughs> you can't go around the problem. Mindfulness, what is the quality of mindfulness? Abhimukha, uh, what is the word? Not abhimukha. Whatever, it means to face, facing. Facing the Dhamma, facing reality. Risaya abhimukha bhava. It's the nature of facing the realities, facing your experiences. That's what mindfulness is about. Not fighting, not f not fleeing, facing. Try and face the moments. Moments when you're not meditating, try and face them as well throughout your day. A big support for formal practice is informal practice, where you're mindful throughout the day when you're eating, saying to yourself, chewing, chewing. When you're walking, saying, walking, walking. When you're standing, sitting, lying, seeing, hearing. When you're liking and disliking, when you're thinking. All right, I'm going to go with that. And you put up the, the closing sadhu. It is good. Thank you all. I appreciate again your interest and your thoughtfulness and your conscientiousness and engaging in a respectful manner with the Dhamma. It is good. May you all be happy, well, and free from suffering. <laughs>